So we're talking about the family of God, and, and the last time we met, which was before Thanksgiving, a week before Thanksgiving, we talked about from John chapter 3 and then some in John chapter 1, what it means to be part of the family of God. And if you haven't had the chance to, to watch it, if you weren't here in person or you haven't had the chance to watch it, I strongly encourage you to watch that because it's really a foundational component to the doctrine of salvation. Uh, there are many, many aspects of salvation uh, that we're going to touch on as we work our way through this over the weeks and months to come. Uh, but really, a, a one foundational element is this idea of that we are adopted into the family of God. And when you get your hands around that, it really um, helps you understand a lot of other important doctrines like eternal security, assurance, and the connection between justification and sanctification and all the kinds of things that we're going to hash out as we work our way through this material. Uh, so tonight, what I want to do is build on that with a presentation on the family of God versus uh, fellowship with God. I was telling Gary, I was working on this all day, and I somehow I got lost track of time and was thinking for some reason that we started at 5. And so my drop-dead time to pack up my computer and hit the road was 3.30, and I was way, I just, I knew I wasn't going to make it. I mean, I was literally looking at my clock on my computer every five minutes and thinking, and looking how many more slides I had and where I was going, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it, and then as I rushed and kind of threw it together, I put my computer in my bag, and then Wendy walked in, and I realized I was an hour off, that I somehow I had thought it started at five, it started at six, so I had another hour, so I pulled my computer back out, I was able to go back through and sort of put the finishing touches on and, and feel a little more uh, at rest about it. Plus, I, most importantly, I was able to have time to make coffee before I hit the road. So it always frustrates me when I have to drive all the way from the springs and don't have coffee. Uh, but this uh, worked out well. So family of God, we talked about that last time. Tonight, we're going to talk about family of God in relation to being in fellowship with God. So uh, the key verse kind of to start us out is Galatians 3.26, where Paul tells us we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So this idea of being in the family of God is pervasive through the New Testament. It's in the language of adoption, being adopted into the family. It's in the language of being a child of God. We're going to look at that verse in John 1.12. Uh, there are several ways that the Bible talks about this. Of course, what we talked about last time was being born again. Obviously, if there is a birth, you're born into a family, spiritually speaking. And so, but this is kind of our foundational verse for our study tonight, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So let me uh, chart it out this way, and I'll come back to this again and again throughout our evening uh, together tonight. Uh, to kind of make this case. And as always, feel free to throw up your hand, ask questions, make comments. If something's unclear or you have something that comes to your mind you want to share with the group, this is an interactive uh, Bible study, and, uh, and we want to make sure you have the opportunity to do that. So fellowship with God versus uh, family of God versus fellowship with God. So if you think of that circle as being the circle of the family of God, every human being is out, born outside of that family. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. And the goal is to get inside of the family of God. But the problem is our sins keep us separated from God's family, from God and the family of God, right? And so the only way, and we've talked about this in the previous several weeks, the only way that a person can break through and become part of the family of God is through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus Christ took our sins upon him on the cross, paid our penalty, and he opens up uh, a way for us to get inside then the family of God. And so when you place your faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins, and you do that solely in him, you know, in other words, uh, there's an exclusivity to the gospel. You can't believe in Jesus while at the same time thinking that you can get to heaven some other way. Now, we talked about this last Sunday during the 9 o'clock hour when we talked about pluralism and evangelical inclusivism. But I always like to point out that it's not just 
belief in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins. Because it's possible for someone to believe that and still not be saved if they're believing it as part of what they perceive to be a buffet line of options. If they think, well, I can believe in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. I can believe in Allah or Muhammad. I can believe in this. I can believe in A, B, C, D, and I choose A. That's not an exclusive faith. You have to come to the understanding that Jesus Christ alone is the only one with the authority to give life because he purchased life with his own blood. So that's why the death and resurrection are both crucial to the gospel. In fact, uh, if you want to flip over, I don't have it on the screen, but if you want to flip over to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, verses uh, 24 and, and 25, Romans 4, 24 and 25, but also for us it shall be imputed to us, that is, God's righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. But notice verse 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now that's crucial because it talks about both the death being delivered up, the death which paid the penalty for sin. Remember, remember sin has a price and it's death. God told us way back in the garden, if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. So somebody had to die, and Jesus died to pay that penalty. But he also raised up so that we could then be declared righteous. If Jesus only died, he would have no way to offer life uh, you know, to us. That life is in the Son of God, in Jesus. So he paid the price, and then he defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead. And he is therefore the only one who has the authority and the power to give life. Muhammad can't do it. Allah can't do it. Buddha can't do it. Statues can't do it. Your own works can't do it. Nobody else can solve this dilemma, this predicament that mankind is in of being separated from a holy God. Only Christ. So when we place our faith alone in Christ alone, represented there by the cross, and the sins are upon him, then the door is opened up, as it were, and we are placed into the family of God in that moment. And once we're in the family of God, we are sealed, the Bible tells us, until the day of redemption. In other words, nothing, and we're going to go, we're going to talk about this tonight, but nothing can break through that wall and somehow make us no longer part of the family of God. So again, we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26. But we could look at other verses that talk about this notion of the family of God, like 1 John 3.1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And then, uh, as I mentioned, John 1, 12, as many as received him, and how do you receive him? He tells us at the end of the verse, by believing in his name. So all those who have faith, just like we read in Galatians 3, 26, in Jesus Christ, then have the right to become children of God. If you don't believe in him, you're still outside the family. But if you do believe in Jesus, then you become part of the family of God. You become a child of God. Or John 3, and also verse 3 and verse 7 both, that we looked at last time. When Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And remember, we said the word again there really means what? Anybody remember? Above, Above exactly. Jesus is talking here about a heavenly birth. He tells Nicodemus, you've been born once on earth. But like every human being ever born, you were born spiritually dead. You need to be born from above. You need the heavenly birth. And when you are born from heaven <clears throat> spiritually, then you are become part of the family of God. Just as everyone born physically has a biological mother and a biological father, even if you don't know who they are. It's, 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 it's a known fact. Uh, you may not be able to identify that, but it, it, it's knowable through DNA, right? And similarly, if you are born spiritually, your spiritual DNA identifies you with Christ. That's why Paul uses the phrase distinctly uh, used by Paul of being in Christ. 
We are now in Christ, in, in the family uh, of God. So if you go back to the diagram, by faith, the lost sinner becomes a child of God and is now in the family of God. But like any family, being part of the family is one thing. Having a more intimate relationship within that family and being you know, in fellowship with the Lord is another thing altogether. So there is a qualitative aspect to being in the family. And some believers are in close fellowship with God. Other believers aren't. We could also say that all believers sometimes are in close fellowship. Sometimes we're not. When we sin, it grieves our Heavenly Father. And it, it sort of breaks that fellowship. Again, we're still part of the family, but we're not in that close-knit intimate fellowship with God. John writes about this in his first epistle. Often misunderstood, the whole first letter of John is about fellowship, not family. He, he assumes from the outset that the people that are receiving this letter are part of the family of God. He calls them children repeatedly. This isn't a book about how to know whether you're going to heaven. It's a book about how to know how to have fellowship with God as a believer. And he says, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So the reason some believers are not having and experiencing joy is because they're out of fellowship. They're not experiencing the fullness of being in the family of God. Does that make sense? I'm going to show you this as we work our way through it. But again, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So you have family, but you also have fellowship with God. Now, here's how this works according to uh, Scripture. And I'm going to show this as we go through with several passages of Scripture. But when you sin, you are then out of fellowship with the Lord. The Bible says the way of transgressors, sinners, is hard. <laughs> right? If you walk in wisdom, if you walk in God's way and in God's word, if you use the word of God as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, your attitude, your heart, everything's going to be going along pretty well. It doesn't mean, if, humanly speaking, that we're going to have, life's going to be a bed of roses. This has nothing to do with your uh, experiences on earth. So a person who is have, experiencing incredible injustices and tragedies can be in deep, intimate fellowship with the Lord because they trust Him and they do the things we're going to talk about you need to do to have fellowship with God. Similarly, a person who's, by all human accounts, you know, has all the money they want, has you know, no, no real worldly problems, they can be far away from the Lord as part of a child of God because they're not doing the things that uh, God's Word calls us to do to maintain that fellowship. So when we sin, we then are no longer in fellowship with God uh, but we are still part of the family of God. Uh, it's miserable for a believer to live a life of sin. Some of the most miserable people you'll meet, and you can often tell by their expressions and just it shows on their, in their life, are believers who will be in heaven when they die, yet they are rebellious, they're quenching the Spirit, they're not walking in the Spirit, they're not yielding to the Spirit, they're outside of the fellowship of God, still part of the family of God, but living that prodigal life. And that's miserable. Again, you can be experientially having all kinds of hardship and be at great peace and be one of the most peaceful uh, confident, secure believers in the world. And we've known people like that. It's a beautiful sight, isn't it? Isn't it a beautiful sight to see a believer who has a tragic accident, maybe loses a child, or is having all kinds of difficulties and maybe has cancer or whatever it might be, and yet they are just shining for the glory of God. They're, they're upbeat, they're confident, they have, exhibit faith in the Lord. Uh, that's a beautiful sight. So our relationship and intimacy with the Father is not in any way contingent upon life's circumstances. In fact, so much of the New Testament is teaching us 
how, in spite of the world's circumstances where the devil is the prince of the power of the air and the whole world is under his sway, and like we're reading about in Hebrews, when you're persecuted and struggling, how can you maintain the faith and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? So much of the New Testament is teaching us how to abide the ebb and flow of life. Even Jesus himself said, look, in this world you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer anyway, because I've overcome the world. Right? So uh, the way of sinners is absolutely miserable. However, when we walk in the Spirit, that is when we set our mind on things above, when we yield to the power of the Spirit within us, the inner promptings and convicting work of the Spirit within us who takes up residence the minute we get into the family of God, when we yield to Him, guess what? Then we're in fellowship with the Lord. So you can be in and out of fellowship as a believer, but you can never be in and out of God's family. The goal is to be joyful. So notice when you're in fellowship, you've got joy. When you're not in fellowship, you've got misery. And that really sums up the Christian walk, right? Yeah. Absolutely. But will you be joyful? Yeah, so this is all earthly. So the question is, well, if you're out of fellowship when you die, will you be joyful in heaven? Of course. There's no sin in heaven. Sin, there's, sin is, there, there's no place for sin. There's no sorrow. There's no jealousy. There's no covetousness. There's no comparison. Heaven is a, a positive, glorious experience for every child of God. Everyone. Absolutely, yeah. So now every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5. And at that moment, prior to entering heaven, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. And by the way, according to 1 Corinthians 4, it's not a reward based on the number of good deeds we did. It's a reward based on the counsels of the heart. So you could have a Christian over here who's been a very moral person, and done all kinds of good philanthropic things, but they did them for all the wrong reasons, selfish reasons, just to get noticed. You know, Jesus said, you have your reward, you know. So, but you could have someone else who you didn't really see much, but they're, they're getting all kinds of rewards because their heart was right with the Lord and they were doing what they did for the right motive. So in that moment, people, believers that are at the judgment seat of Christ will be rewarded. There's no punishment, even though... Uh, some people try to suggest there is, and we were talking about that a little bit before the service, um, but there is no uh, punishment at the judgment of Christ. There are no punitive damages. It's not like God says, you know, all right, you get 10 years in prison, you get five years in prison. It's none of that. It's you get, you know, tenfold reward, you get fivefold reward. You don't, you don't get a reward, right? So, and I've used this illustration before, but if I'm you know, going to be paying my sons for doing yard work, and uh, I agree to give them $25 if they'll do a particular job for me, and when it's all done and they come to settle up, if I give one of them 25 say, great, thanks, good job, see you later. The other one I give 35 because I gave him a $10 tip because I thought he did an especially good job. Am I somehow cheating the first son? Am I punishing him? Am I, is that punitive? Absolutely not. Uh, and so heaven is the, is the birthright of every believer. By nature of being part of the family of God, every believer goes to heaven when they die, or if the Lord comes back before we die. Um, but what will be different in heaven is the amount of rewards that one believer has over the other, and those rewards, we're going to get to that whole study in this series. Uh, I have a whole chapter of it in what li on it in What Lies Ahead, but those rewards are things like positions of service in the kingdom, uh, special names, special uh, jobs, crowns. There's all kinds of rewards in the, listed in the New Testament. Um, but again, just because you get a reward and I don't doesn't mean somehow I'm going to be bitter or jealous or angry because there's no sin in heaven. So... Um, but the rewards are uh, a, big, a big part of it. So this is an earthly diagram. This is, you know, how do we function in, in life? And, and when you get right down to it, if you can get your hands around this notion here uh, of family of God versus fellowship with God, 
you'll, you'll get it, right? So every believer is in, in a family of God by faith alone in Christ alone. We become sons of God through faith. As a believer, you are either in fellowship or not. If you're in fellowship, you have joy. If you're not, you have misery. It's, it's pretty simple. Again, Proverbs says, the way of transgressors is hard. Um, Hebrews, which we're going to get there in our study on Sunday mornings, reminds us that uh, what son is there whom the father does not chasten? When we sin, he's going to discipline us to try to draw us back into fellowship, right? And, and, and the family of God uh, model or metaphor, if you will, is something we can all relate to, whether you're a parent or a child. You understand what it's like when there's something coming between you. Let's say your child misbehaves and you've got to discipline them. No parent enjoys that, but they, spiritually speaking, they understand it's necessary to train up their children. And they do it and the child is, you know, cries or is angry. If they're older, maybe they get bitter and they push away. But there's nothing quite like that moment when the child comes back, gives you a hug and, and you all sort of breathe a, a sigh and you're like, okay, things are right once again. They're not tense. We've made things right. And so discipline does that. It, it brings, brings you back into the fold. First John, going back to this book about fellowship, reminds us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, a lot of theologians, because they misunderstand the entire premise of the book of First John, don't see the distinction between positional forgiveness, the once-for-all forgiveness that gets us into the family of God, and experiential forgiveness that keeps us in fellowship with God. And so they read a verse like this, and they say, oh, that's talking about how to get saved, how to become eternally saved, how to get into the family of God. you got to confess your sins, and He'll forgive you your sins, and boom, you're back in the family of God. It's not at all what this is talking about. If you look at the context, and we're going to look at several other verses in 1 John as we go through this tonight. So uh, th there's lots of different ways that we can yield to the Lord through His Holy Spirit in order to be in fellowship with Him and experience the joy of the Lord or to have the fullness of joy. And again, this is not necessary, even though in a diagram, especially a two-dimensional diagram here, you know, we're we're making it seem like it's it's all or nothing black or white there anytime you sin in that moment you're out of fellowship but in the in the immediate aftermath if you feel the convicting work of the holy spirit and you agree with god that's all confess means by the way confess is the greek word homo legeo homo same legeo say it's to say the same thing as so you say to god i blew it <laughs> You know, if you'd have thought about it beforehand, you, you, you might not have blown it. But whatever the lust of the flesh was powerful, you gave in. And then you come back to God and you say, you know what? I was wrong. What I did was an offense to you. It was sin. And, uh, you know, I want to make it right. And in that simple moment, once again, you know, you're, you're back in fellowship. So uh, now it can be a prolonged state. The Bible talks about quenching the spirit. It talks about having a hard heart. The more you sin as a believer, the harder it is for the Spirit of God to break through. And likewise, the, the more you walk by faith and live in the Spirit and obey the Word of God, the, the, the less you're tempted to go the other direction. It's just good habits, right? But uh, this is sort of a, a fundamental uh, teaching of Scripture between, about the distinction between being in the family of God, being born again, saved eternally, and having an intimate fellowship that brings you joy. Notice that your joy may be full. Like you can have levels of joy, but you want to have the fullest. It's like what Jesus said in John 10. I come that you might have life, and that what? More abundantly, right? So remember, eternal life is not something you get when you die, right? When do you get eternal life? When you believe the gospel. So your eternal life begins here and now. That will eventually lead to eternity in heaven. But along the way, you can have, if you walk by faith and yield to the Holy Spirit, uh, you can have uh, you know, much more abundant life, much more fulfilled life. You cannot let the, 
the inequities of this life knock you down and throw you around and discourage you, you can continue to set your, your face like a flint and trust the Lord uh, or not. But the thing that you need to understand is that no child will ever penetrate through this wall. So no matter how far away you get from God as a prodigal, nothing can penetrate through that wall. Look at what 1 Peter tells us. We are kept by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed in the last time. So if you go back here, who, whose wall is that? God's wall. It's the power of God that keeps us from penetrating through that wall. It was our faith that opened the door for us to get into the family of God, but nothing uh, can overcome the power of God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? That's why Jesus said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Never means never. Uh, in fact, the Greek construction here, it's a double negative. If you were to translate this word for word, it would be, I give them eternal life and they shall no never perish. Or never perish forever. <laughs> you know, it's, it's redundant. Uh, the best book uh, I've seen on eternal security, which we sell at our Not By Works uh, conferences and in our Not By Works online store, is called Shall, uh, shall, is called ne shall Never Perish Forever. Uh, and uh, and it, it, it's based on this verse. But notice, neither shall anyone snatch you out of my hand. My Father, Jesus said, who is greater than uh, me, uh, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So no child can ever penetrate through this wall. So now that we've sort of established how you become part of the family of God and then how you function as part of the family of God, let's take a look at several passages of Scripture as we go through this and see how this paradigm of family versus fellowship uh, shows up in the Scripture. Uh, obviously, we've already talked about 1 John 1, where you can be in fellowship or you can be out of fellowship, okay? In fellowship or out of fellowship. That's the basic uh, premise. He says, truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write that your joy may be full. A little bit later, he uses it, he talks about it this way in 1 John uh, chapter 1 and verse 6. To be in fellowship is to be walking in the light. To be out of fellowship is to be walking in darkness. To be in fellowship is to be walking in the light, but to be out of fellowship is to be walking in darkness. Notice what he says. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So that light-darkness metaphor runs from Genesis to Revelation. You are, uh, before you're saved, you're surrounded by darkness. You come to the light. He's the light and our salvation. But once we're in the light, if you sin, it's like you're walking right back into the darkness again. Again, you're not leaving the family of God, but it's the same a concept that uh, we, we get when we talk about righteousness. So positionally, we are righteous the minute you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you're born again. Does that mean we are all practically righteous? Anybody in here ever do anything that's not righteous? Of course we do, right? So just because of our position in Christ doesn't guarantee that we're always going to live like a member of the family of God. You know, just like in your family, or let's say in our family, I might say, you know, to one of my kids when they've done something uh, wrong or disappointing, I might say, you know, no Hickson should act like that. You know, why are you doing that, right? That's not the way we Hicksons act. You know, you've, you've heard those kinds of things. Well, that's the way the Word of God uses the same language. No child of God would act like that. Why are you acting like that? Remember in James, we looked at this a few weeks ago, how in chapter 1 he talks about how you should be doers of the Word and not hearers only because it's the doers of the Word that will be blessed. And he also says that 
if you're not doing the Word of God, it's like you looked at your new birth in the mirror. You looked at your spiritual life in the mirror, who you really are in Christ, the born from above part of you. You see who you are in Christ, and then you turn away and forget what you're like, and you start living like the old guy. And it's possible to do that. That's, that's the whole point. It's possible, even though we are no longer in darkness, to walk in darkness. But you see this again and again. The whole book of Romans, you see this. Uh, you are a new man. Why are you living like the old man? You were, you've been set free from sin. Why are you enslaved once again? In fact, I have a, a little clip that I often show uh, when it comes up in Scripture of this idea of being enslaved, of Barney Fife, you know, from, from Andy Griffith, where he frequently, one of the common jokes on the show is he would walk into the cell without the keys and the door would slam behind him and he's stuck once again. And of course, Andy would have a lot of fun with it and it's always a, a, a laugh moment. But that's what it's like for Christians. You've been set free. Why would you want to walk back into that jail cell and close the door behind you? Right? Um, you see this in, in uh, First Corinthians or Second Corinthians six, and in Ephesians five, and in Galatians five, where he gives those laundry lists of activities that are characteristic of unbelievers, and he says, unbelievers who are unrighteous are hellbound. Why would you, as a believer who's heavenbound, want to live like someone who's hellbound? And those passages are always twisted and distorted and and. In fact, let's look at one of them because people, uh, people miss this all the time. But look at, for example, uh, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Actually, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6 says... The same idea there about don't be unequally yoked with you know unbelievers. Why would you as a believer want to be walking in that in that fellowship? Because what temple has God, the temple of God with what fellowship has the temple of God with the temple of Satan? But go back to First Corinthians six is what it is. So I misspoke. It's not Second Corinthians. It's First Corinthians. So verse First uh, Corinthians chapter six verse nine. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What kind of righteousness is he talking about there? Practical or positional? Positional, exactly. How do we know that? By comparing Scripture with Scripture. Because it's not our practice or behavior that saves us, right? It's not by works of righteousness, like my theme of our ministry, uh, that saves us, but His mercy, right? So when he says the unrighteous, he's talking about the positionally unrighteous, and we know this because if you read on, skip ahead for a second down to verse 11, and he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. What does justified mean? Declared righteous. So he's, he's contrasting the unjustified, the unrighteous, those who have not been declared righteous by faith, which with those who have. So, do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Why won't they inherit the kingdom of God? Because they've not been saved, not been justified by faith. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. How many times have you read this verse or heard it preached that, as if Paul is saying that because they do these things, they're not getting into heaven? First of all, that can't possibly be the case, because who among us can claim to have never coveted, even as a believer? And that's one of the sins that's listed here. We always focus in on homosexuals. I remember one time a lady called me and wanted my advice because a church that she was a part of was going to have a college student uh, whose family was still in the church, was coming home for a break. And this college student was a particularly gifted singer. And they wanted her to sing special music in church. But she was a lesbian. And so this lady called me, ostensibly to ask about that, but in the course of the conversation about, you know, whether that's appropriate. And of course I said it's not. Uh, you don't want someone who's in willful rebellion against God 
up in front of the church aiding people in worship. I mean, that's complete. That's about as blasphemous as you could get. But in the course of the conversation, she goes, you know, we, we've talked to her. We, some of the ladies of the church went and met with her. And, you know, we told her she was going to hell. And I said, oh, really? Well, based on what? And she pulled out this verse. And I said, look, I don't know this young lady. I don't know if she's born again or not. She may very well be on the road to hell. But it, if she is, it has nothing to do with her being a homosexual. Because the Bible doesn't say that you go to hell because you're a homosexual. You go to hell because of unbelief. Uh, Jesus makes that very clear. So, uh, and there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer cannot also commit if he's catering to the flesh or she's catering to the flesh. So, back to 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous, the positionally unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he's going to describe behavior that is characteristic of unbelievers. This isn't a cause and effect. They're not going to hell because of this. But unbelievers who are sold under sin and don't have the Spirit of God within them tend uh, to a greater degree to end up acting like some of these things. And then notice verse 11. Such were some of you, but you've been justified, right? So you see the same thing. Uh, if you go over here to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 5, and this is good because it's actually talking about light and darkness. Uh, notice, pick it up in verse 1, Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God, dear children. Who's he talking to? Believers, right? Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Now, why would Paul tell them not to engage in behavior if it was impossible for believers to be committing that behavior? Why wouldn't he say, well... You better not do these things because if you do, you're not really going to heaven. He didn't say that. He's challenging them not to act like that because that's not appropriate for saints. People that are part of the family of God don't act like that, right? Hicksons don't act like that. Uh, but read on. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Same word, not fitting for believers. But rather giving th thanks. For, know th for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, he's not saying because of these things, right? He's just he's already talked to them about the contrast here between saints, that's the term he used, or believers, or children is what he said in verse 1, saints in verse 3, and those that are not, and don't do things that are not fitting for you. And now he's just talking about things that are characteristic of those that aren't going to heaven. Now, some people will come to verse 5 and try to make a distinction between inheriting the kingdom and getting into that kingdom. There's definitely an inheritance available to those at the beam of judgment like we talked about. But context has to determine meaning. Sometimes inheriting the kingdom means getting into the kingdom. Getting, you know, even present in heaven at all. And that's the case here. Let no one deceive you with empty words, verse 6, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So verse 6 explicitly tells us who it was that was fornicating, being covetous, idolaters, and so forth. It's the sons of disobedience, that is, unbelievers. So don't be partakers with them. Now watch this. For you were once in darkness, positionally, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Same thing John says in his book on fellowship. When you're walking in the light, you're in fellowship. When you're not, you're in darkness. Not positionally, but experientially. Paul says it slightly differently, but the same principle. That you used to be positionally in darkness... Now you're positionally light in the Lord, so therefore walk experientially in the light, right? And have no fellowship, he says, with the unfruitful works of darkness. So it's possible for believers to walk in darkness and therefore not be in fellowship 
uh, with uh, the Lord. So again, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Another way that this fellowship and family dichotomy bears out is 2 Corinthians 5.7. When you're walking by faith, you're in fellowship. When you're walking by sight, you're not. You're out of fellowship. Okay. So what does 2 Corinthians 5.7 say? For we walk by faith, not by uh, sight. Uh, so, uh, you know, as you... Uh, live your life, the whole Christian life comes down to living by faith. In fact, uh, Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So the whole Christian life, it, it's really this uh, paradox because we live in a world of time, space, and matter where you can see, feel, and touch things. We live in a world where you have mortgages, you have jobs, you have bank accounts, you have cars, you have food, you have houses, you have all these things. But God's word says our citizenship is in heaven. And we're supposed to set our minds on things above, not on things on earth. Same thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, even before the church and before uh, you know, we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and all that. He said, store up treasures in heaven. In other words, live on earth in light of your heavenly perspective. Not on earth, because on earth, moths can destroy, rust can destroy, thieves can steal, right? So uh, we, it all comes down to walking by faith. And when you walk by faith, you're able to see the unseen. That's the definition of faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. So when you're walking by faith, it doesn't knock you off your game when you get bad news, Right? You know, you, the doctor tells you you've got cancer or you lose your job or somebody gets sick or, you know, the whole world shuts down and, uh, you know, Moderna is about to roll out a very dangerous vaccine that will utterly destroy your DNA and people are going to line up like sheep to take it. And man, that can be pretty troubling. But all of those things are things we see, Right. The believer who's in intimate fellowship with the Lord is walking by faith, not by sight. Not by sight. Uh, so another one is Galatians chapter 5. I referenced it a moment ago. When you are walking in the Spirit, you're in fellowship with God. When you're walking in the flesh, obviously you're not in fellowship with God. Flip over to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in Galatians this Sunday. I'm doing a taking a break for December from Hebrews, and we're doing a Christmas series. And I, I love Christmas. I, I could preach on Christmas year round, you know, uh, and I and I love it. But anyway, I'm going to be talking about uh, a Christmas theme from Galatians chapter four. But if you look in Galatians five, uh, in verses starting in verse sixteen, Paul says, "I say then, walk in the Spirit." And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, because the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. This is, in essence, describing the struggle between being in or out of fellowship with God. It's the same struggle Paul describes in his own life in Romans chapter 7. When he says, you know, the things that I know I should be doing, I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do, sometimes I do them. Uh, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? It's a struggle. The Christian life is a struggle. I mean, if, as some teach, Calvinists, for example, uh, there is no sin nature. They believe in, in the one nature. Once you get saved, the, the new nature eradicates the old nature. And it's for that reason that they say any, any alleged believer, they call him alleged, who's living in sin must not really be a believer because no believer would produce that kind of stuff. Even though they know intuitively and instinctively that they sin, they've just categorized sins. So that in their theology, God's okay with their continued pride or jealousy or doubt or fear or other 
hidden sins, but someone over here that struggles with drugs or alcohol or sex or other, the big so-called big sins, then a Calvinist is hasty and quick to conclude, well, they can't possibly be a believer because no believer's new nature would produce that. Well, the problem is you do have an old nature. Ephesians talks about it. Colossians talks about it. It's an old man versus new man. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is a believer only has the old man. I mean, an unbeliever only has the old man. So an unbeliever, if he does or she does anything good, it's only out of their old man. It's, it's like filthy rags, according to Isaiah. It's just, you know, sort of in their own willpower. And people do that. There are a lot of unsaved people who do nice things, right? There are a lot of cults who don't believe in the death and resurrection of Christ as the only means of salvation. But yet they're very moral people. But that morality isn't being born out of the new nature. It's being born out of their own desire to somehow work their way into a relationship with the Creator. But a believer has two natures. He has the new nature, which takes up residence when we're born again. The Holy Spirit is permanently indwelling us. But we still have that old sin nature, that old man. And Paul is telling us here in Galatians that these are contrary to one another. And so it all the whole Christian life comes down to who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the Spirit of God and trust Him? Or are you going to believe your own flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which are a formidable foe? Are you going to believe your own eyes at how shiny that apple is? Or are you going to believe the Word of God through the Spirit of God who says, don't eat it? it, it that's the option, right? That's the, the struggle. And when we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill uh, the lust of the flesh. Now, let's because this was the other passage that I mentioned when I mentioned 1 Corinthians 6, I said 2nd, but it's 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, and Galatians 5. Uh, let's go ahead and read the rest of this. Verse 18. If we are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Uh, because Galatians talks a lot about the law. Galatians chapter 3 talks about how the law, talking about the Mosaic law, was put in place just as a uh, steward, uh, a guide, uh, until Christ came. But now we're no longer under the law. Uh, the Mosaic Law, all it did was sort of give some regulatory principles, help keep a little bit of order, and highlight the fact that we sinned. But sin had been around since the Garden of Eden 2,500 years earlier. Then the law was given on Mount Sinai in f roughly 1440 B.C. And all it did was sort of highlight sin. Sin had always been around because sin is a matter of the heart. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden and they didn't have their written law. And so... We're now obeying the Lord not because of the written law. We obey the law written on our hearts, the Bible says, the Spirit of God. So remember, the laws were made for man, not man for the laws. Don't hang your hat on the law. That thinking really permeates a lot of Christian teaching, and, it, and it's misguided, and it leads to false interpretations, for example, of Romans 13. So I don't not speed because I believe it would be a sin to speed. I don't speed because I believe it's foolish, it's reckless, and so forth. If I speed and I get pulled over, I'll pay the ticket. But it's not a sin, right? It's not a sin to either obey or not obey. If I, I don't, I don't uh, not rob a bank because it's against the law. I, ro I don't rob a bank because in my heart I know it would be wrong, right? It's the spirit that convicts me, not the letter of the law. Now, depending on where you live, if you violate a letter of the law, you may have to pay the consequence. Um, but we need to understand that principle because there are a lot of Christians today saying that we must bow down and worship the government because the government says, do something. And Romans 13 says, you've got to obey the government. No, it doesn't. Romans 13 doesn't say that at all. A lot of people teach that, but that's not what Romans 13 says. And that kind of thinking is very dangerous because it's based on a very Western American view of Scripture. Nobody would have thought, nobody in North Korea that's a Christian thinks we've got to obey the government of North Korea unless they force us to sin. Whatever they say, we've got to obey them unless it's a sin. No one says that. North Korea is a, North Korea is a rogue government, as is China, as is many other governments. The whole point of Romans 13 is if the government is doing good and representing God, you should obey them. When they're not, you don't have to. It's not talking about individual behavior. So the, the narrow, misguided view that Unless the government makes you sin, 
you must obey them, is wrong. And there are going to be a lot of people that because they think that's what Romans 13 teaches, who do some things that are uh, unhealthy and dangerous, right? Uh, so, by the way, if you want more info on Romans 13, my video, Red, White, and Bad, When the Country We Love Becomes a Country We Fear, goes through Romans 13, the first seven verses, and exposits that, if you're interested. Or maybe someday we can talk about it in, in here. Uh, but, so, we're not on the law, so I got sidetracked there. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And they are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. These all sound familiar from 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, in case he left anything out. Now, there's no way that anybody should be able to read this and not identify with several of these. I know, you're like me, your mind immediately goes to murder and sorcery and you know, fornication and all the biggies. But let's be honest, there's a lot more in this list. You ever had an outburst of wrath? You ever been jealous? You ever had any selfish ambition? If you think that these behaviors here are in God's Word because they are telling you this will send you to hell, every one of us in this room is going to hell. Because every one of, this, of us in this room commits one of these things. That's not at all what he's saying. Um, he's, he's simply giving the behavior that is characteristic of those that are hell-bound. Hell so essentially what he's saying is why, having been born again in the Spirit, skip down to verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, and the, the literal word if there is since, the, the grammatical construction since, since we, believers, Paul includes himself, are alive spiritually, since we are part of the family of God, let us then walk in the Spirit. Let us live like we're part of the family of God. Now, he wouldn't say that unless it were possible to be alive spiritually but not living in the Spirit. And that's the whole point of that passage. The flesh lusts against the Spirit. When you walk in the Spirit, you're in fellowship with God. When you walk in the flesh, you're out of fellowship, but you're still part of the family of God if you have trusted in Christ. Uh, let's do another one. We're getting running up on the top of the hour here, but let's do at least one more. John 15, again, often misunderstood. Uh, when you're in fellowship with God, you're abiding in Him. When you're out of fellowship, you're not abiding in Him. The word abide in the Bible is the Greek word meno. It means to remain in fellowship with. That's actually what it means, to remain close to. Okay? And John uses that same word meno. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote the epistles of John. And in 1 John, he uses the same word meno, abide, several times. For example, he says in 1 John 2.28, Little children, believers, abide in Him, in Christ, so that when He appears... You'll be confident and not ashamed. You know how, how shameful would it be for the Lord to come back and you be found living in sin, living out of fellowship, in misery. Now it may, from the world's perspective, look like you're living high on the hog, but you know in your heart. Any believer who's living in sin knows in their heart how miserable they are. Their way of transgressors is hard, and so John is challenging believers to remain in fellowship, to remain close. But this passage in John 15 is from Jesus teaching in the upper room. Now, this always amazes me because some teachers, uh, particularly those from a Calvinist viewpoint, suggest that what Jesus is saying in the upper room here is you need to get saved. That's what abide means. To abide means to become born again, to get into the family of God. But the problem with that, besides the fact that we have several passages where the word is used that clearly it's talking about fellowship, is the fact that the only people in the room when Jesus made this statement were 11 believers. Judas had already left. This is in the upper room. So why would Jesus tell the 11 how to get saved? He's not telling them how to get saved. He's telling them how to have fellowship with Him. When you stay close to Christ, you are in fellowship, he says to the disciples, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. When you separate yourself from God, when you walk outside of the sphere of fellowship, like a prodigal, 
You're, you're, not, you're separating yourself from the source of power. You're not going to have uh, fellowship. Not gonna, you're not going to have an effective, uh, not going to be able to do anything. You can't do anything unless you're in me. In fact, he's going to say that in the same passage, which we'll come back to. Uh, the, the idea also in here is dependent versus independent. When you're in fellowship with God, you're dependent on the Lord. When you're independent, you're out of fellowship. Now, this is a pretty powerful concept. Ask yourself uh, why God is God might be causing you to go through difficult times to draw you back to Him. Because what often happens in our lives is when everything's going along smoothly, right? Everybody's pretty healthy. There's money left over at the end of the month. Got a good job. Got all the kids are speaking to you. You know, you you start thinking, yeah, I'm pretty good, and and sort of the Lord becomes an afterthought. But so we become independent, and in a strange way, we end up getting out of fellowship with the Lord. The better things are going. Why does James tell us that the testing of our faith will help make us complete or mature? Because he knows. That when we find struggles and we can't solve them ourselves, what do we do? We have to go to the Lord, right? And we learned this lesson a couple of years ago. We went through a horrific crisis in the family and spent months trying to do everything within our power to solve the problem. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that was necessarily wrong. We were, like any good parent, trying to, to do what parents do. And, but at the end of the day, it was God that performed the miracle and solved the problem. And it reminded us that, you know, the... the We've got to be dependent on Him. We've got to pray. We've got to seek His solution and not try to take matters into our own hands. What did Jesus say in that same context about abiding? He said to the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can't do anything. You've got to be dependent. Or in Philippians, Paul expresses this idea of dependence versus independence this way. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not, all, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it doesn't say work for or work up or work into. Work it out. Live it out. You've already got it. Now live it out. Because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Dependence. The same God who saved you eternally and get, brought you into the family of God is there to help you, sustain you, provide for you, protect you. You need to be dependent on Him. And so often we, by faith, are become part of the family of God and then we quickly drift off into, I've got this, right? And it's only when there's a crisis that we return and start thinking about God. And God wants us to think about Him all the time. He wants us to be dependent on Him. And that's that intimate uh, fellowship. So let's stop here. We'll do part two next week. And I'll, I'll see if you have any questions here in a second. But I've got about, I'm about halfway through uh, the slides. Coincidentally, this is slide 28. And there's 55 slides. Okay, So uh, I didn't plan it that way, but that's just the way it worked out. But we're just going to continue... To, to overlay this concept of the family of God, fellowship versus family, against the Scripture. And another way to say this from a more theological way is position versus experience or practice. So understanding positional truth, as we call it, that is who you are in Christ, where you are in Christ, is, is crucial. I taught this... Uh, using different slides, and but the same concept of family, God versus fellowship, we got several years ago at a conference, and it's one of several times that the director of the conference edited this part out, because he doesn't think you can be out of fellowship. And I don't know how he gets that from Scripture, but you clearly can be, as a believer, as a child of God, out of fellowship with the Lord. I mean, even David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, right? You can't be living in sin, living out there in the, you know, the light blue, in misery, in the way of transgressors, and then expect to just burst into the throne room and pray and say, Lord, hey, I need this, I need this, I need that. The Lord's like, uh, wait a minute. 
there's some there's a little bit of tension here, my child, <laughs> right? You know, it's like a child in the in the earthly family who disobeys severely and and you confront them, maybe a teenager and and they bow up, they don't repent, they don't confess, they yeah, oh, who are you? I don't you know, I can do what I want. I'm 16, you know, whatever. And then the next day they come bump, you know, bounding into the kitchen and act like everything's normal. Hey dad, what's what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Or hey mom, what are we going to And you're like, "Uh, excuse me. <laughs> we got some unresolved issues here. Let's let's back up a bit and let's let's work it out." Still my son, you're still my daughter, I'm still your father, I'm still your mother, whatever. And that's the way God is. Nothing can break through that wall. But absolutely, when we sin, it, it breaks that fellowship. So any questions before we uh, close out tonight or comments or anything? Yeah. I was going to say that because of the softening look of a lot of sin in our culture, it would seem to me that there's a lot of people who think they're in fellowship with God because they don't view that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, it's absolutely. And you see other scriptures that I would bring into play with that too, like the falling away, the apostate church. I think there are many churches, and it's sad. It's a sad thing to watch. You know, I've been in ministry 32 years, and I've, I, I've seen, in, even in that short time, just a pronounced departure from truth. And uh, especially... Uh, now, uh, in fact, you sent Wendy an article that I have. I can't wait to read it. I opened it, but I haven't read it yet. But it's, what was the title of it, Kelly? Um, Something like uh, the Christians falling away. Here, I'll look it up. Uh, but it's, it's a reflection on the fact that churches uh, are, uh, are not really standing for Christ anymore. They're, they're, it's, an, it's an embarrassment. What's my wife's name? Oh, there she is, Wendy. <laughs> I can't talk and think at the same time. Church leaders who cancel Christmas are clinging to lies, not Christ. That's a very great article. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think the, the, the fact that, that there's the softening of sin, they don't even like to use the word sin, it's weakness, flaw, limitation, you know. Right, the whole pop psychology thing. And then the fact that churches are getting further and further away from it, it, it so makes... Of that misery to draw them back to God because they don't they, their yeah. consciences are they're seared. seared in many cases. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but also they're rob they're robbing them them of the misery by downplaying and marginalizing it. But they're also robbing them of the joy. Mm -hmm. There's there's no incentive. And what we need is to people. There's no to 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 teach people. There's no greater place a child of God can be than in that intimate circle of fellowship with our Lord. Yeah, what was your... Well, I think about the person in misery here. Let's say, in a moment of weakness, they gave up their old life of sin, and they accept Christ. Yeah. And quotes around weakness. Now they're a Christian, but they, they go back to their old ways, and they're miserable because they had the convicting spirit right. saying, oh, well, you know, this is not where you should be headed. Yeah. But they're thinking to themselves, I'm miserable. I thought I was supposed to be joyous. Yeah. What's going on here? So the person that's in that misery, he's still within the family of God. So what's the responsibility of the family of God, the fellowship of believers towards that person? Yeah, again, this is somewhat two-dimensional, and there, there are some complexities to it uh, that when you actually try to live it out in real life. But I think fundamentally it comes down to uh, reminding them, again, of the of the joy of their salvation. Remember, David is the perfect example in Psalm 51, his penitent psalm. He says to the Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He knew that what he had done was wrong. He was miserable and he wanted to be restored. So I think we need to preach that, preach that, that Christianity isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship and there's no better relationship on earth. But then I think we also need to help, especially young believers who haven't been discipled, who this whole uh, spiritual conviction is new to them, recognize when they don't immediately recognize it themselves, we need to feed that. We need to remind them. So, hey, you, I saw you were doing this and this. Did you 
feel anything in your heart? Did you, did that seem good? You know, did you enjoy it like you used to? And, and just sort of draw it out. You need to have the explicit discussions, uh, I think, with them. Uh, that's why I love James's epistle, which we spent several uh, sessions on, because James was, it's the earliest book in the New Testament. The church was about 10 years old. Paul hadn't even started his ministry yet, and people are, uh, for the first time on planet Earth, experiencing what it's like to have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit into Christ, so that they are now in Christ. Old Testament believers were not in Christ. Old Testament believers didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament believers didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this was for ten; had only been going on for 10 years. They didn't have the rest of the New Testament. So these were believers that were out. I mean, literally, if you read on in the book of James, they were murdering. And we think, wow, how could Christians be murdering? Well, I mean, they were baby Christians who didn't know better. And in that culture, it was not all that uncommon. They were showing favoritism. They were judging one another. They were exhibiting all kinds of sin. The whole book of James is telling them, look, you need to live out your faith. It's not about how to get to heaven or how to know whether you're going to heaven. It's about the practical benefits of living a godly life. So I think we need to just preach that. We need to preach positional truth versus practical truth. The church... To whatever extent the church hasn't completely fallen away from the Bible, and I'm thinking here of Calvinists and other false doctrines who value the Word of God. Let's be clear. Calvinists are believers who love the Word of God as much as we do. They just misinterpret it. But what we've done is oversimplified the Christian life down to heaven or hell. And when someone's struggling, like the hypothetical you gave, you know, most Reformed theologians or Calvinists would just simply say, oh, well, you're not saved. You need to get saved. It's that, it's that simple. Well, I can see that person believing that, too. Yeah. Easily. Sure, because our human nature is one that's prone to performance and prone to, you know, uh, a sort of a quid pro quo type of concept. And so if they think they got saved by making some kind of commitment, which is what Calvinism teaches, then when they're not committed, they're going to think, well, maybe I wasn't saved. My commitment wasn't strong enough. So. Well, encouragement is a lot easier to bring people back than judgment. So to go up to somebody and say, you can't, you can't walk, there's, there's no way you're getting through that wall. Right. The power of God has you, and this, this feels to you like maybe you're outside that wall, but I'm just reminding you that you and I are in the same place, and, and I just want you to come to the building with me because you're already with him yeah you know, like and, and it just seems like for me i think it's really liberating to not have to come to somebody with bad news you've got good news you know and, and the lost person has there's good news too but it's even better news to somebody who's been saved it's just like yeah. hey it's it, it looks bad yeah it looks really bad yeah and a lot of people hate you for it you know yeah <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't matter. You're still, you're just one step away from being back in fellowship. Sure. And I like what you said, come with me, you know, come alongside, put, put your arm around them and say, hey, let's, we're all in this together. I struggle too, you know. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think this is a very important principle to understand as we talk about salvation. And just as you ruminate on this over the next week, just think family of God versus fellowship of God. We know how you become part of the family of God. We're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a one-time moment in time, one and done, right? But then the rest of life, until the Lord comes back or we go the way of all flesh, is about seeking that deep, intimate fellowship with our Savior through all of the different ways the Bible describes it. So. Okay, well, awesome. Thank you, and uh, thanks for giving us a few extra minutes here.